As you know from reading this, at least I hope you know, <laughs> I'm Dennis Sansom and we're going to be talking about uh, religion and science, in particular scientists who believe in God and why that is the case. Come in and um, I'll have four sessions and today I'm going to talk about the theological foundations for modern science and then next Sunday I'll talk about Isaac Newton. It's kind of a mixed bag but very interesting, had some really strong things to say as you well know about science but religion as well. And then two contemporary scientists, uh, Pokinghorn, who's now retired chemist from Cambridge University in England, and then uh, Francis Collins, the very fa Collins, the very famous scientist who was part of the uh, Genome Project, and uh, he's written quite a bit about his theology and faith, and so I want to talk about that as well. So that will be on the fourth Sunday. All right, before we start, I'm going to open us with a prayer. Our gracious Lord, we humble ourselves before thy majesty, knowing that thou hast created a good world in which we live, which all things are ordered to give thee praise. And this is what we ultimately seek to do, Lord. By knowing more, we can love thee more. Bless us in this time. Bless this congregation. This I pray. Amen. Okay. A uh, little history about why I'm doing this. Uh, last year, if uh, some of you may have uh, joined me, I had a come in a series. Uh, don't worry about me talking. Uh, you're not bothering me at all. My wife, my wife walks away when I talk to. Uh, uh, my dog doesn't ever look at me. I'm joking. My wife pays attention. I shouldn't have said that. Be that as it may, I did a series on what I called the New Atheist, and there's been a number of people of great fame or infame uh, who have uh, written these very popular books arguing that uh, there's not a God and that religious people not only are irrational but are probably a threat to modernity. And I looked at what they were saying and why they said it and tried to come up with what I thought would be a legitimate response to their challenge. And consistent with all of them, the new atheists from Christensen to Dawkins to Harris and so on, is that science disproves the existence of God. That is, if you really do believe in science, you, you, you will not believe in God. And I'm you know, definitely don't agree with that, and I'm going to challenge that, as I did then, this time by looking at some scientists who do believe in God, not separating faith and reason, but some way seeing that there are reasons to have faith that are born out of the, their basic scientific convictions. But what I want to do this, this first time here is to talk about the theological foundations for modern science. Most people, if you were to ask them, what is the relationship of science and Christianity, the church in particular, what one particular event most everybody will mention that illustrates the conflict between Christianity and science? Evolution. Galileo or evolution. First of all, Galileo and then evolution of Charles Darwin. Uh, that's highly, highly unfortunate in my opinion. You know, Galileo lived in the 17th century and for 1700 years there had been a lot of Christian reflection theological reflection, understanding, that paved the way for what we now know as modern science. In fact, I'll, I'll mention this a little bit later. It'd be an interesting to study just to spend a lot of time thinking on this. When Pontibus VIII condemned Galileo for his geocentric explanation of the rotation of the planets, that was an aberration, that was an anomaly, that was contrary to some Christian thinking that was going on, even by the Jesuits at that time. 
So when Boniface VIII condemned Galileo, he didn't do it because he was relying upon 1,600 years of, of Christian reflection. He wasn't. He wasn't doing that. He did it based upon the authority that he felt was being challenged by Galileo. I, I think that's an important point. Most people don't know that. But I do think we have a very rich tradition that we can rely upon uh, in our uh, Christian faith to help us understand what is the relationship between religion and science. All right. Uh, who painted this? I know I'm asking too many questions already. <laughs> That's a famous Raphael painting of the philosophers. It's really a rich painting. A lot, a lot of different people. The, the, it's, it's very, very insightful uh, to see how he presented certain people. But at the very center of this is Plato and Aristotle. Uh, which one's Aristotle? Another bad question I shouldn't have asked. No. Therefore, <laughs> is the one holding down. Plato points up, if you uh, if you remember your introduction to philosophy days, uh, you know, Plato felt like reality was in the eternal realm. Substance, that is what is constituting truth and reality, was immovable, eternal, infinite, and hence it existed uh, in a world separate from ours, a supernatural world. Hence he pointed up for to look at the truth. Aristotle, though, with his hand down like this, felt that substance, that is reality, were found in particulars. You have to know the particulars of our experience, not the universals, not the abstract universals, but the particulars, things that change, things that move, understand causality. Uh, I know this is an overstatement, uh, but you know they pay me to make overstatements. <laughs> I would say the difference here between Plato saying truth is outside of the realm of experience and Aristotle, that is, the truth is within the realm of experience, is the fundamental conflict of Western culture. I really would say that. I know that's, that sounds like an overstatement, but that issue is still very much a part of the great ideas that shape our society, and it was formed all the way back in the 4th century B.C. there in Athens. And we're still living this out, and so much of Christian history, Christian reflection, theology, the life of faith, is in some ways bouncing off what Plato said about where is truth, and then what Aristotle said about where is truth. All right, that's going to come up again. But let me say a little bit about Aristotle. Aristotle arguably is the beginner of modern science. That is, if you want to trace backwards modern science, we're going to we're going to start it with Aristotle. Uh, Modern science, you know, from the great theories, from the big ones like relativity, relativity to the very narrow microscopic theories like quantum physics and so on, have a history. Those just didn't drop out of the sky one day. It wasn't that, you know, all these wonderful, brilliant scientists just came up with an idea. Those were shaped by a long discussion, a long set of debates and revisions and retractions and responses in the history of science. Science has a history. We need to understand that. That history, because it occurs here in the West, is in part shaped by a theological history. And that's really what I want to show, that the history of theological reflection has shaped the history of scientific development to get to the point where we are today. All right. But it really starts with Aristotle. Just if you want to trace the line all the way back, Aristotle is in some ways the father of modern science. Just a little bit, uh, he, he was a remarkable person. Unbelievable. When I was in <coughs> graduate school, I 
had a course on Plato and then a course on Aristotle, and I did better on the course on Aristotle. And the teacher who taught both of them said, you know, you're either born Platonic or you're born Aristotelian. <laughs> you were born Aristotelian. I've always wanted to be Platonic, though, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but uh, Aristotle was very influential, wrote a lot, really did. The man had a thirst for knowledge. In fact, one of his most famous statements is that all people desire to know, and he definitely did. Uh, I got these sort of interesting facts and figures. If you really want to see the screen, there are some other chairs back here. It might help you. Yeah. Um, some of the first stuff that Aristotle wrote, he wrote on zoology. Uh, he named 170 species of birds. 169 fishes, 66 types of mammals, 60 types of insects. He dissected animals and uh, 100 different kinds of creatures to map out their internal, internal organs. The man had a thirst for knowledge. In some ways, the beginning of zoology, uh, in which you find experiences, I mean, examples, and you categorize them, you put them in big categories, really starts with Aristotle. And that's because the knowledge of the world starts with knowing the particulars. Not knowing the universals, the truths up there in the eternal realm, but knowing specific events that are in motion and causality and so on. Knowledge then, that is if we really want to know something for Aristotle, you have to understand the causes. you got to understand how did it get to be where it is? What's going to cause it to be something else? So science here is driven by the pursuit of causality. What causes things to be what they are? One of the most lasting influences that Aristotle had is what I have number three, the four causes. That is, something is what it is, according to Aristotle, because it has been caused by four things. Let me use an example of a carpenter making a house. There's the efficient cause, which would be the carpenter actually going out there and hammering and cutting things, the efficient cause. Then there's the material cause of a house, that is the matter, the wood, the cement, the blocks, and so on. You have to have wood and cement and blocks to build a house. You have to have someone to nail and cut and and lay and all that to build the house, all right? Then there has to be a formal cause. That's the shape of things, the design of something. That is, a carpenter just doesn't go out and throw a bunch of wood out there and start hammering. He follows a blueprint. That is, there's a formal cause to it. Then finally, what, what Aristotle called it, is that if there's a final cause, and that's the purpose of things. That is, if people didn't want to live in a house, we probably wouldn't have built houses. So everything has a final cause. So true science means trying to investigate what happens according to those causes. <laughs> now, uh, I, I want to mention number four. It's a very significant thing. It's pretty technical. But this is really a rejection of his great teacher's book called Timaeus. It's one of the, frankly, least read books of Plato, but maybe overall the, one of the most influential books of Plato. If you read anything by Plato back whenever you did these sort of things, or maybe you still do, you probably read the Apology that's about the trial and death of Socrates. Maybe you read that great chapter there in the Republic called the Allegory of the Cave, which you know, a lot of college students read and so on. But one of the last things that Plato wrote was this book called Timaeus, and he talks about the creation of the world. It's really a, a, a brilliant, fanciful work, and it has been incredibly influential but Aristotle posted. All right, here's what Plato said in the book Timaeus, that originally reality was just sort of formless, and uh, the God of the universe was not involved. That God of the universe was distant and removed from this formlessness, because you can't put eternal form and formlessness together. That's, that's, a, that's a contradiction. It's like two poles of a magnet. You can't get them to stick. 
The pure God cannot have anything to do with impure reality. So how did the world come about? He said there was sort of an intermediary God called a Demiurge. And that Demiurge just was a very brilliant mathematician. And in the book, Timaeus, he works really hard to show that throughout all of reality there are geometrical forms, portions and ratios and so on, that a, that a semi-god made the world according to mathematical formula, that everything operates according to these necessary mathematical truths that were formed by this constructor, so to speak, dealing with existing matter. Aristotle rejects that. And the reason why he rejects it is that even though Aristotle does think that the world is eternal, he just doesn't think it has necessary mathematical truths embedded in it. He rejects this idea that there's necessity within nature itself. All right, that contrast between Aristotle and Plato is very, very pivotal. This is, you know, once again, a, a, an overstatement maybe, but in some ways, Christian theology were parked there. Some Christian theologians will go with Plato. That is, the world is this mathematically beautiful system. Other people will go with Aristotle, seeing the world as kind of a, just an operation of causes. All right? And there have been very, very great representatives on both sides of this issue. My point is this, though, just to get a little ahead of myself. Modern science grows out of <coughs> Aristotle's influence. And we'll see Christian theologians taking Aristotle's influence into different directions. There will be some great Christian theologians, probably the greatest of them was St. Augustine of the 5th century, who stayed with this Platonic idea. Modern science does not grow out of Augustine's ideas, out of his theology. It does not. Even though I love St. Augustine, and we can still learn a whole lot from St. Augustine, but what we know as modern science has its roots back to Aristotle, not to Plato. <clears throat> all right, we all know the first uh, two chapters of Genesis are about God's creation of the world, and it starts off that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earths. Uh, and you've studied those chapters, and you know there's a lot of sort of subtleties there between the two chapters. But basically, we could summarize those two chapters by saying there is a God who made a world. All right, it's not that there was a world that God fashioned, but God made this world. So the world exists entirely because it has a creator. All right, That creation is not eternal. It's not patterned after you know, infinite, eternal mathematical principles. But it is orderly, <coughs> starting with light all the way ending up with the creation of humanity. There's a system to this creation. But that system is, this is a big 50 cent word, is contingent. That is, its existence doesn't depend on itself. Something else had to make the world, in other words. The world does not make itself. God had to make the world, but God made the world orderly. This is at the very heart of the biblical notion of, of creation. It's orderly. God put it in a system. We can think about it. It's not chaos. It's not randomness. But it's contingent. It's not eternal. It depends upon something else. Ultimately, it depends upon God as the creator of the world. Those two truths... The world is orderly, it's amenable to reason, and contingent, not eternal, or at the heart of Christian faith. In fact, as you well know, uh, at, at, you know the, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed start off with that claim. I believe in uh, God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that there is an order, heaven and earth, but it's created, it's contingent at the same time. 
rational, but not eternal, orderly and contingent. I, I'll say, and I'm, I'm not alone in this, a lot of people, I think, will, will chime in on this idea, that that set of beliefs, the world is orderly, therefore amenable to reason, contingent and not eternal, those two truths represent the heart of science, modern science. We can reason about the world, but the world is contingent. It's open. It changes. It's not fixed. But it's amenable. We can come up with scientific theories. We can clarify. We can unpack some of the rhyme and reason of our experiences. But it's not like mathematical formula or ge geometrical proportions. It's contingent. Hence, nature will always be looking for something else, always pointing away from itself. The very orderliness that we can experience in nature indicates that something had to make it orderly. The contingent feature of existence reveals to us that there had to be something that made it. All right. Uh, in the early church, allow me to sit down. My old knees get tired standing. Um, there, there are three or four maybe centers of Christendom the first four or five centuries. Jerusalem remained important mainly because that's where the great acts of God occurred. The church, though, was very small and poor. Antioch of Syria was a very powerful church, had a very strong theological center to it. Of course, Rome by the third and fourth century was a very powerful church. A lot of authority was being sort of accumulated there in Rome. But the intellectual center of Christendom was in Alexandria, Egypt. Some of the greatest theologians uh, that lived, lived in northern Africa and were trained there at Alexandria. Um, I've already mentioned this contrasting influence of Plato and Aristotle, and it was played out there at Alexandria. Uh, it had a huge library, by the way, that sort of fell in disrepair and then finally was um, destroyed uh, in the 7th century. But it, it was estimated that next to the great library at Ephesus, the greatest holding of books and texts and manuscripts was there at Alexandria. And some of it was because most of the great intellects of the world went to Alexandria because there were schools being formed. And there was a school formed by one called Cyril, and Cyril of Alexandria, and he was eventually canonized as the saint. And Cyril is what some people call the first dogmatic theologian. Now, the word dogmatic is an entirely negative word for us today, which I can understand why. There is some feature, but in the history of the form of the word, though, there's something very constructive about dogma. The word dogma literally means learned opinion, dogma. You have a well-thought-out viewpoint. You've come to a reasonable conclusion. Hence, you have a defensible idea. That's called a dogmatic opinion. Right, Surreal argued that theology is not speculative. When we think about God, we're not just conjecturing about something. We are starting with evidence. We start with the revelation of God. We start with what God has revealed of God's nature to us. And then we begin to reason relative to revelation. The reality of what you want to know conditions how you try to know it. That was dogma. Hence, theology should be dogmatic in that regard. That is, it starts with revelation and adjusts its thinking to the nature of that which it pursues. All right, perhaps the greatest student of Surreal was Athanasius. Uh, St. Athanasius. Brilliant, brilliant thinker. In some ways, he was the author of the Nicene Creed, St. Athanasius. Uh, wrote on a lot of things and also wrote a lot on nature. Athanasius applied the same dogmatic strategy or method.
that is you adjust your thinking to the nature of what you're thinking about, not only to revelation, but also to nature. He, applying this biblical idea of the world being orderly, amenable to reason, but the world being contingent and not eternal, he applied that way of thinking now towards nature itself, thinking about the big cosmology, the heaven and the earth. That started a process of theological reflection that eventually comes to... Well, I'm going to make a detour here. Uh, St. Augustine. Well, no, no. St. Augustine is not really part of the Alexandrian school. Uh, I'll pick that up in, in a minute. I should. I got out of order with this. As I said, St. Augustine was brilliant. No doubt about it. Uh, when, when, I, when in doubt, I just go read a little St. Augustine and things get clear in my mind. Uh, you know, his confessions are just one of the great, I think, statements of the Christian faith. His, his book on the Trinity is probably one of the, if not the greatest book on the doctrine of the Trinity that the church has. On and on and on and on. Uh, but he was wrong about nature, though. Uh, he had been influenced by Plato and the great legacy of Plato's thinking that uh, at the heart of Plato is that there are two worlds. There's the world of being, and then there's the world of becoming. We, earth, nature, is in the world of becoming, change. Nothing is permanent, nothing is really knowable because it could be known today and then be gone tomorrow. Which do you know more certainly, something eternally and permanent or something that is transitory and contingent? Well, it's the eternal and, and permanent. And so for Plato, we always want to seek the eternal. And hence, we forget or make secondary the importance of our knowledge of the world. Augustine was very much shaped by that. Even though Augustine had a profound love for creation, uh, he loved nature, he, he meditated on nature and so on, but he saw it as, too, nature is a symbol of eternity. You've you, you got to look through nature to find eternity. Nature in and of itself is not that revealing. It's a symbol. It stands for something else. It, it, it's not a containing of any truth at all. And so the whole reason why we want to study nature for St. Augustine was to get through it, not to try to understand it, but to look beyond it, like a symbol would look beyond what it represents. It, that had a big, big influence. And frankly, it remained very influential in Christian thinking, maybe even some today, uh, up until the 17th century. That is, nature is okay, it's interesting, but we have to find the eternal truths that nature represents rather than the truths that are found within nature itself. All right. I would say probably the opposite of Augustine's approach to nature is here by this main man named John Philoponus. Lived in the 6th century there in Alexandria. He was part of that great Alexandrian school. I would wager that none of you have heard of John Philoponus, which is highly unfortunate. Um, I mean, I'm not lambasting you, but our whole educational system has ignored tremendous contributions made by Christian thinkers in our Western tradition. Uh, this is not original with me. I get this from a, a man named Thomas Forsythe Torrance, who's written a lot on religion and science. He calls uh, John Philoponus the Christian physicist. Really an interesting guy. Um, he wrote quite a bit. He wrote a lot of commentaries on Aristotle, by the way. And in these commentaries, he would often critique Aristotle, showing that there were things about Aristotle that were contradictory and not helpful in the study of nature.
He was a Orthodox and Orthodox Christian, that is, accepting the great teachings of the faith from not only the Scriptures, the Apostles' Creed, and the great ecumenical statements like Nicaea and so on. And part of that was that he adopted the doctrine of what's called ex nihilo, that is, creation was brought out of nothing. All reality is utterly dependent upon God as its creator. That is, there is God and then there is creation. It's not that God and creation, but God then creation. And, and because of that, creation depends upon God. That is, creation is contingent. It's not eternal. There's nothing eternal in nature. And because of that, according to Philoponus, you don't reason from nature to God. If God's eternal, the only way to know God is on eternal way, in eternal ways, right? Eternal truth requires eternal knowledge. The earth is contingent. You can't reason from nature to God. But what you can reason from, though, is from nature to the need for God. Nature won't tell us who God is. You can't look at stars. You can't look at matter. You can't look at species. You can't look at yourself and say, God's like this. God's like me. Or God's like nature. Or God's like the system. No, you can't do that. Because God is eternal. Nature is contingent. But nature, in being contingent, reveals to us that there is a God. There has to be something that has made it. That's at the core of what he believed. Secondly, because God created, creation has a rational order. He, once again, being a, a schooled in the Alexandrian approach, dogmatic theology, he applies that dogmatic method now to the study of nature. That is, we have to shift, adjust, accommodate the way we think to what we're trying to know. We have to think appropriately about nature based upon the way nature is. Not the way we think it is, the way we want it to be. That is, remember back with Plato's uh, Timaeus? Uh, that is, he felt that there were these geometrical formula that were embedded in the very makeup of nature itself. So he first of all came up with math and geometry and then he went and found that in nature. That is, you have a preconceived idea and you make nature conform to it. Philoponus rejects that view. He's a dogmatic scientist. That is, you adjust your ideas to the nature that you're trying to study. That was revolutionary. In some ways, of course, Aristotle, as I said, is kind of the father of modern science. This is also a great uncle, so to speak, of, of, of modern science. The scientific spirit, that is, the scientific methodology doesn't come with ready-made answers what we want to pursue, but it learns answers through investigation, through inquiry, you know, through pursuit, through test and hypothesis and so on, has its intellectual roots here in John Philoponus. Now, just as an aside to this, now, like I said, it's unfortunate that we don't know anything about it, but he had a very influential history. Galileo already, uh, a famous humanist of, that, of the 17th century, Mirandola Reading. Uh, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century reading, they differed on some things. But he had a significant influence, though. And today we don't know anything about that. When we want to think about the conflict between religion and science, we go to Galileo. And that went on between Boniface VIII and Galileo. That's unfortunate. There was, there was already, this is 6th century, 16th, a thousand years of reflection, of serious study that was going on, that was shaping Western culture based upon some of the ideas that he had. <coughs> All right, quickly here, my time is going to... Uh, I need give, to me the, give me his date again. Uh, if you don't mind. 
he actually made some uh, significant contributions to physics. Uh, first of all, he talked about light. Um, the word philoponus, you may think that looks like lover of light, but it actually means lover of toil. Interesting sort of nickname. Some people called him John the Grammarian, um, but he called himself John of Alexandria, but he's known as Philoponus. His works are supposedly very tedious, and they are what little I know about them. They're very, very tedious and argumentative. He, he, he had a lot of bad attitudes towards other people, and it comes out in his writing, so it's a toil to read his stuff, hence he has this bad nickname. But one of his great contributions was the study of light. Uh, I am not going to pretend to understand all this. I know enough to, to persuade you that I think I know something. All right? <laughs> so, so just... Just, just say he, he, he introduced these ideas, and um, they, they demand of us a lot more inquiry. But uh, Aristotle also talked about light, and he said that light is potential transparency that becomes actually transparent. All right. Uh, interesting notion. I don't know if I could come up with anything better than what Aristotle said about that. But uh, John Philoponus argued that that wasn't quite right. That light is kinetic energy. It's not moving from potentiality to actuality. It's kinetic energy. There's heat in light. And he talked about the sun warming us up. The light that comes from the sun actually warms us up. And he did a lot of study. That light is not just transparency, the things that make things transparent. It also has energy to it. It's kinetic. So light, in that it permeates anything, brings energy to it. And that's very much, I think, part of what modern science thinks about. The basic feature of material reality is energy. And light is this. And, and as far as I know, and also what I've read, uh, he was the first to come up with that idea, that light is kinetic energy. Now, where did he come up with that idea? Well, he did it by experiment. He did it by pursuing what he was investigating and adjusting his thinking to what he was trying to study. Uh, he made a distinction between uncreated light and created light. That light here, that is kinetic energy, always presupposes something that caused it, which presupposed something that caused it, which presupposed something that caused it. And he, and he also kind of gets this from Aristotle, uh, argued that this cannot go on forever. There cannot be an infinite series of causes, in other words. Because if cause, a cause, cause, on, 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 then something's got a cause. Something. All right. There needs to be something that causes light. And that's uncreated light. That's the creator. At the heart of the being of God is energy, so to speak. Is power. And that's what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Our very first claim in our statement of faith, the very first testimony of scripture, is that God is is powerful enough, is energy, to create a world out of nothing. And so there has to be uncreated light for there to be created light. Created light cannot go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Logically, that's impossible. Something has to start this, and this is God. Um, oh, one other thing. Uh, I, I meant to write the, maybe a hymn I forgot, and I overlooked it. He also rejected the eternality of the world. Um, Aristotle and also Plato had argued that matter is eternal, that the world is eternal. It's always been. He rejected that idea. 
because everything has to have a cause. Something eternal cannot be a cause. I mean, there cannot be a, what's called the infinite regresses of causes, an eternal series of causes. So he rejected the eternality of the world. And that was a very fundamental shift in thinking because the whole ancient pagan world was that God and nature were sort of one and the same, eternal. Both of them were infinite and eternal in reality. And then to say that the world is not eternal was to affirm the great biblical truth that the world is contingent. See, if you think that the world is eternal, it's always been, how then do you best know it? By finding eternal truths in it, like mathematical formula. That's what Plato said. So we can study nature and then real know <coughs> who God is because they both are eternal. They both are basically mathematical. He rejected that because we know reality is contingent. It's not eternal. Science here is not trying to find eternal truth within nature, but trying to come up with the best rational explanation for the ordinance that we experience within a contingent world. This is at the very heart of what uh, Philoponus said. Here, one other thing. Um, that he said that I think is pretty interesting. In the ancient world, any of you chemists here or studied much chemistry? I don't know how many elements there are on the periodic chart. Roughly 111. Okay, 111 elements in the world. In the ancient world, there were four. Well, there's a man-made two. Okay. There were four, most everybody. And this was long before Plato. They came up with there's fire, there's air, there's earth, and there's water. Okay, pretty interesting. Uh, Aristotle accepted that. And he said, well, how do we explain the movement of the stars? They seem to always be moving, never stopping. <coughs> how can these four elements cause the perpetual motion of the stars? Aristotle said idea, had an idea that something has to move something before it can be moved. There's got to be a mover before there can be a motion. The stars are moving. Fire doesn't cause it. Water, air, and earth, they don't cause that motion. There must be a fifth element. And this idea really stayed around for a long time, by the way. Philoponus rejects it. And now he comes to this because of a logical deduction. That is, there has to be this fifth element. He called it ether. There's ether everywhere. Now, the reason Aristotle said the reason why there has to be ether everywhere is because... Let me, I'll use my phone here. If I were to throw this at you, what makes it move? Aristotle argued that the air that was in front of it, as it's going through, will come around and push it from the back, because something constantly has to push it. You follow that? Now, we don't think that makes any sense, does it? How can the air come around and push? Well, what, what Philoponus argued <coughs> is that, and he uses the arrow being shot from a bow, that the bow puts kinetic energy in the arrow, and that's what makes it move. You don't have to presuppose ether to presuppose motion. There's <coughs> kinetic energy in things that make a move. I, I, I probably modern physics doesn't quite see it that way, but it was a revolutionary move. That is, we can think of things moving relative to who they are, not according to this presupposition of, of this ether everywhere that makes everything sort out the way it does. That was a revolutionary move, and in fact, probably started a lot of modern thinking about kinetic energy. Oh, all right. Okay, I'm going to jump here several hundred years. I'm going to jump over Thomas Aquinas.
uh, I know I, I have friends that would want to hang me for doing that. They think truth started and ended with the Thomistic system. Uh, Thomas, though, adopts a lot of what Philip Thomas has, even though he disagrees um, on the eternality of matter. Uh, Thomas is a very important figure, too. But I want to talk here about the Reformation that starts in the 16th century. We usually think of that as just as a religious movement, and indeed it primarily was. But it started some things that were indispensable for the growth of modern science. You know, Calvin and Luther never really thought they were starting another religion. Um, you know, I'm a descendant of, in a sense, the, the Reformation, and I consider myself Christian just as much as any Christian even prior to the Reformation. Calvin and Luther didn't think they were going to invent another religion. They had to be reformed. The church of the 16th century was very corrupt. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to come to that conclusion. Um, it was very power-oriented, very centralized there in Rome. Theologically, it wasn't that uh, astute. Uh, morally, uh, there was a lot of corruption in the church. And you know, you probably know this from your study of Luther. Really, what studied his reaction was the sale of indulgences, which he thought were totally, totally inconsistent with Christian faith, as, as they are. The whole notion that you can buy years of someone's soul just doesn't make any sense at all. And so he rebelled against it, and rightly so. And I would say, even though there has been excesses of the Reformation, for sure, with even you know the second generation of the Reformation, there were sort of excesses of it, but the church needed reform. All right, there are a couple of doctrines um, that went on during the Reformation that I think <coughs> are very, very important for the formation of modern science. That if there had not been, now I know people would want to hit me in the head with a club for saying this, but I, I think this is defensible. If there had not been Luther and Calvin, there would not be what we now know as modern science. Now you're not going to hear that from Dawkins or from Harris or from Hitchison. You're probably not going to you know, hear that said in some academic program. But I think as far as the development of ideas, and ideas are always evolving, they evolve in reaction and response to preceding ideas. What went on the Reformation started a set of ideas that eventually bears fruit in what we call modern science. All right, first of all, they reject this idea, that's the Latin phrase, God's not without nature, nature's not without God. This was just a basic affirmation of the biblical claim. In the beginning, God created. Not that the, that, that the world is God, or God is the world. God created the world. So there is an ontological difference between the two. Secondly, they also rejected this Augustinian idea, though both of them were very much shaped by Augustine, that nature is just a symbol. It's not a symbol. It's not some sort of kind of mystical realm that we need to pierce through to find God. No, there is a beauty to the natural world. Augustine, I mean, excuse me, uh, 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 Luther talked about the ordinary life. And he talked about the ordinary functions of nature as being created by God. And we should respect that ordinariness of life and also of nature. They also, like the August, I mean, the uh, Alexandrian school, uh, emphasized the objectivity of theological knowledge. Uh, one of the great advances in, in the study of theology that Luther and Calvin made was that they wanted to go back to the original language. And I love Latin. Latin, the Vulgate, is a very good translation, but that's what it is. It's a translation. They insisted that biblical knowledge go back to the original language, Hebrew and Greek. And so they were great Hebraic and Greek scholars. And why would you want to do that? You've got to think, not according to presuppositions or pre-arranged pre ideas, what you want the truth to be, but you've got to go back and 
prudently investigate the study as seriously as you can. And if we're going to say we're going to base our knowledge upon the scriptures, we better know what the scriptures say, not a translation of it, as helpful as those are. But study the original. This was sort of this dogmatic theology coming out again. Three, the inseparability of God's reality and the knowing of God. There were two great doctrines of the Reformation. And this is really what I mean when I say it has really given you know, grounds for the development of modern science. One is the priesthood of believers. Uh, of course, that has many features to it. But at the heart of that, according to Luther, is that you find the truth of God. You investigate the truth of God. Don't accept it on blind authority just because a priest or a magisterium or a prince or a king tells you to do this. This is the scientific spirit. The concept of the priesthood of the believer makes it you know, incumbent upon us to pursue the knowledge of God. Not just be passive and blindly accept what authoritatively told us but to pursue. Secondly, and this one comes from John Calvin, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of men are inseparable. If we know God, we are knowing something about ourselves. Calvin had this great doctrine, and, and it is a great doctrine, that God condescended himself so that he could be known. That is, God lowered himself, made himself open to investigation. That God's not this removed, aloof entity that's just totally unlike anything that we know, hence we can't really know it other than through symbolic knowledge. God lowers God's self. In fact, you know, that's the Christian claim. God became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, as, as Philippians 2 says, he who taught not robbery is equal to God, lowered himself. Hence, the way God lowers God's reality is into human existence, into human life. Therefore, God has given us ways to know the nature of God. This is at the heart of Reformed theology, and I think it ought to be at the heart of all Christian thinking, that revelation, the nature of God, has accommodated the nature of God so that we can know God in return. Okay, at the heart of sciences, once again, the, the knower and that which is known are inseparable. There's always a give and take. There's a, a, a action and reaction, a thesis and antithesis, and the knowing influences what is known, and the reality of what is known influences the knower in this. This is very much, and that's part of what makes, frankly, modern science continuous. It's never going to stop. And anybody who claims infallibility as a scientist is not speaking in the name of science. Science is always open to revision. Why? Because we're part of the investigation. Science is always open to challenge. You know, if anyone says, you know, science says this and there's no other opinion about it and there's no other way to think about it, there's no, you know, you know revision lying in the future is, is, is not talking in the name of science. Well, my point is this. Calvin was the first to make that a point. That idea permeates itself out into culture and society and begins to influence. Yes, my time is almost up. Um, I'm not quite getting as far as I want to. If I don't, and I'm not trying to bait you to come back next Sunday. You may think I've heard this guy enough. I'm not coming back there. Uh, I'll finish this up when we come back next Sunday. William of Ockham, of course, um, he had some notorious things to say. He was wrong about a few things. Uh, but he was uh, very indispensable for the development of modern science. He was a Franciscan priest out of the University of Oxford in England. Uh, and he came up, maybe you've heard this phrase, with this little formula called the Occam's Razor. Most photos, as I showed you earlier from uh, Raphael's painting, have Plato with his big, thick beard. 
Uh, what Occam got a razor and shaved off his beard. And what that meant is get rid of thinking about universals. If something is complex, make it simple. All unnecessary principles should be eliminated. What is superfluous, what is not necessary, you shave it off. Just get to the simple truth. And according to, to this Franciscan priest, who is also a logician, also a scientist, said that knowledge also starts with the simple things, the particulars, not the universals. In fact, they're just names. They're just names. We have to concentrate on the simple things. And because of that, he, like Philoponus, like part of what's claimed there in Genesis, says that reality is contingent. There's not a universal mathematical formula embedded in matter. There's not. We can mathematically explain things, but that's our thinking adjusting to the reality of it. It's not it. You know, a mathematician doesn't go out there and, like an archaeologist, finding a pot at the end of some dig and find, you know, a truth of geometry. No, it's an intellectual construct that tries to illuminate the experience. And this is very much what he wanted to do. With number two there, log nature doesn't follow logical laws. We have to adjust our logic to, to the study of nature. Um, and that, that was quite revolutionary. Aristotle had these, these, these sort of timeless logical truths, and they're brilliant. I, I teach a course on logic, and we always start off with Aristotle. But, but logic has moved beyond that. It's a lot more complicated now. Uh, if you think of the world as just this kind of um, matter that has embedded geometrical principles to it, then logic will always just be sort of deductive and formulaic. But we realize that reality is contingent. Things are always sort of moving. That, uh, that there is not some sort of internal formula manufacturing the world that it is. And so logic is adjusting to that experience as well. And then finally, one of the great contributions to the development of science was he, he, he shifted the vocabulary. He rewrote the lexicon, so to speak, in that there are not universals, there are only particulars. We don't need to talk about substance and essences. We just need to talk about forces and motion. Now, that's very much the sort of terminology of modern physics. We talk about forces. We don't talk about substances and essences. And this comes from this Franciscan priest trying to understand as well as he can. He made some mistakes, I think, later on in a lot of his thinking, but trying to understand as, as, as intelligently and as faithfully as possible that we live in a world that's been created, that's contingent, and not eternal in it of itself. All right, my time's up. Let me summarize this. When I come back next week, I'm going to talk about one other person, and that's Francis Bacon. All right. But in summary, let me say this. It starts off with that great biblical claim, orderly world that's contingent. How do we know such a world as this? We need to adjust our thinking relative to that which we are pursuing. John Philoponus was a great illustration of this. I think in some ways the Reformation was an illustration of this. And I think Occam is in some ways an illustration of this. These were Christian thinkers based upon that Christian doctrine of creation that gave culture a set of ideas that when they quit thinking about you know, the authority of the church and began to pursue the knowledge of nature, it yielded this tremendous fruit of which we now know as modern science. Without that, if Plato had won, and I hate to say this, if St. Augustine had won, we wouldn't have modern science. We have modern science because Aristotle, the Alexandrian school, John Philoponus, in some ways, I think Thomas Aquinas, the Reformation, and William Locke.
Okay, that's that's my case. Okay, we'll come back and continue that a little bit more. And as I said, next week we'll also talk about Einstein.